The 19th chapter of the book of Luke is the place of our text on Palm Sunday in the Christian calendar, often a, a um, sacred day neglected by many Southern Baptists, but a favorite Sunday from which to preach God's Word. Beginning verse 28, I'll read through verses 38. And after he, Jesus, had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethpage and Bethany, near the, mount of the, near the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which, you, in which as you enter you'll find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It all happened 2,000 years ago on this day when the king came to town. Now that's a momentous event in any time, especially on this day when this king came. It is estimated that there are as many as two and a half million people in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Most of them, many of them, were from Galilee, where Jesus had enjoyed tremendous popularity. And so they rolled out the red carpet for him. And the countdown to Calvary began. For the first time, Jesus accepted public acclaim. His entry into Jerusalem was no backdoor event. He rode down Main Street of Jerusalem in the full view of his opposition and in the midst of this immense throng. And a shout went up that shook hell. One of the newer translations has it that the whole city was moved because of him. There's a reason for that. The reason for that excitement was not because of who Jesus was necessarily, but because of who they thought he was and because of who they wanted him to be. For they lived in anticipation that one day Messiah would come. And when he came, he would restore the glory of David's kingdom. And they just knew that this was him. They looked for a Captain on a stallion, he came as a child in the straw. Their expectancy was that he would lead out a rebellion. He came bringing in a redemption. 
Their anticipation was that he would lead, give liberty by leading an insurrection. He came giving freedom through crucifixion. And they crowd, and the crowd shouted, Blessed be the King. But in the midst of all this tumult and noise and excitement of that first Palm Sunday, there is a little story, a little side event that pricks my imagination. It's the event, it's the things that surround the acquiring of this little donkey, this little horse on which he rode. Now Jesus had told his disciples, you go in to the city of Jerusalem and when you find this little colt, unbroken, untrained colt tied, you untie him and bring him, to him, bring him to me. If anybody opposes you, tries to stop you, all you need to say is, the Lord needs it. Now don't you find that a little unusual? I mean, if you're looking out your back window in the morning and you see a couple of strangers hot-wiring your car, and you run out there and you say, hey, what are you doing? And they say to you, well, the president needs this car. You're going to say, sure, and I'm the king of Siam. I'm going I'm to call the police. William Barclay in his commentary seems to have a need to explain every illogical and unexplainable event with some logical answer. And so he says that all this had been prearranged by Jesus and the statement he told his disciples to make was a password just between Jesus and this man. Be that as it may, I'm literally fascinated by this compelling thought that the only explanation necessary when God makes a demand upon our lives, upon our time and our talents and our money, the only explanation God needs to make that's necessary to make that demand upon your life is just this, the Lord needs it. And so 2,000 years later, this same Christ stands before this congregation and he makes the same claim and the only explanation necessary is that the Lord just needs you. Now notice the person who makes this claim. He is the Lord. The word is kurios. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew messiah, messiah. Lord kurios. It's Christology's central word theme. It's Paul's favorite word, kurios. It means absolute sovereign Lord, God, who created you. The one who created this world, He is the one that needs you. Now, I don't think we'd be too far from wrong to, 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 to point out that, that really the, the greatest, the biggest reason why this world has never owned His sovereignty is because it has never realized, it has never really recognized His identity. Who is this man that makes a claim on your life and mine when he says, follow me? There is a, there is a kind of mystery to His personality. He is the lowliest and the meekest of the sons of men, and yet he said, I will come in the clouds of heaven and, and in the glory of God. He is so austere that, that demons and evil spirits cried out in terror at his coming, and yet he's so genial and, and winsome and approachable that children love to play with him and little ones nestled in his arms. 
He, as, as, as he washed his disciples' feet, he is servant of all, and yet with grand authority, he strode into the temple. And with such ecousia, with such authority, that the, that the hucksters and the traitors literally fell over one another to get out of the way of that flame they saw flashing in his eyes. And in the beginning, he saved others, but in the end, he couldn't save himself. Who is this man? There's a certain mystery about his personality, but there is a certain mastery about his pretension, his claims. For he deliberately set himself in the center of his teachings. He didn't say merely, I have found the answer to every man's needs. He said, I am that answer. He didn't just say, I want to show you the way. He said, I am the way. And he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I, I alone can give you rest. What other preacher or prophet would ever make such an audacious claim? And his audacity staggers us when he's speaking of himself said, a greater than Solomon is here. And when speaking of himself, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now in the face of those audacious claims, you and I have only two options. They are either the lies of a, of a maniac or they are the truth. And so this Jesus who stands before us 2,000 years later says, I need your life. And that's all the explanation necessary. And what we have to do is we have to either cheer him or jeer him. We have to crown him or crucify him. Put a scepter in his hand and call him king. Or put a spear in his side and call him crazy. But you can't ignore him. And the same Christ stands before us now to make the same claim. And the consensus of the gospel is that he is king and he deserves to be crowned. Kurios, the Lord has need of you. Notice the purpose of the claim. He has a need of you. Herman and Henrietta were married and she was the rich one. She had a big inheritance, so she bankrolled their marriage and never let Herman forget it. And, and they, had a, they had a beautiful home, just built a beautiful home. They were in it looking around, and she said, just remember this, Herman, if it weren't for me, this wouldn't be here. He said, I know, honey. And they delivered out new furniture, and they were putting in the rooms, and, and Henrietta said, look at this furniture. If it weren't for me, it wouldn't be here. He said, I know. And they came with this big stereo thing, and uh, you know, stereo uh, player and CD and all that, big sound system, and they put it up in the den, and she backed off and said, look at this, if it weren't for me, my money, if it weren't for my money, it wouldn't be here. And Herman said, well, I don't want to hurt your feelings or anything, but if it weren't for your money, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> Why are you here? Why, why are you here? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Did you know that you are here on this earth because of a divine intent? There are five million people who live on planet earth and most of them move silently from the womb to the tomb and they never ever realize nor do they ever fulfill the divine purpose of their lives. Five million people 
moving silently, and we are among them from the womb to the tomb without ever realizing, without ever discovering, without ever living out the divine intent. And so Jesus told a parable about a fig tree. And he said a man on the fig tree had a fig uh, caretaker and he nurtured it every year. They went to the fig tree for fruit, found none. Now you don't have to take figs 103 and southeastern to know that the purpose, the divine intent of a fig tree was not to have leaves for shade or give wood for fire. The divine intent of the fig tree was to give figs. And when they went and found no figs, he said, cut it down. Now watch this. Jesus told that parable for only one reason. This is the reason that the real test of life is faithfulness to the divine intent. We go silently from the womb to the tomb without fulfilling the divine purpose. I like Peanuts cartoon. I'm not much on cartoons. I don't read those much, but I'm always looking for sermon stuff. And I guess the reason why I liked uh, Peanuts and, and most sermons are kind of that, you know, that just dawned on me. They're a lot like that. But I, 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 uh, the reason I like Peanuts, I guess, is because I think Charles Schultz writes about us. And we see ourselves in Charlie Brown and Linus and Lucy and company. And, and every, every day, nearly, he just, we just kind of are able to look inside of ourselves. One day, Charlie Brown is depressed. I mean, it's nothing unusual for him to be discouraged, but he's really down. This is what he says. I'm not worth anything. It's been like that since the day I was born. The moment I stepped out on the stage of history, they looked at me, shook their heads, and said, not right for the part. I wonder how many young people have said that over and over. I wonder how many people express that or feel it at least when they look in the mirror in the morning. I'm not worth anything, not right for the part. You are. Created in the image of God, there is a divine purpose for every one of us. He needs you. A divine intent. And so Paul taught us to quote for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Don't miss the next verse. It says, for we are his poema. The word poem comes from that. We are his creation, his masterpiece. We are his workmanship, created unto Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, decided beforehand that we should walk in them. You know what he's saying? He's saying that God created you for a work and he created that work for you. It's tailor-made for you. It's tailor-made for you. Just right for you and you're just right for it. I guess you know Bertha Adams or knew of her. Died when she was 70, weighed 50 pounds. Spent her life begging for food door to door clothes to wear. The last few days of her life she, she spent in an old nursing home and when they buried her, they buried her in a pauper's grave. Then they discovered she was worth over a million dollars. She had $800,000 in cash. She had stocks in some of the blue chip stock companies of America. She was rich and died a pauper. When you go silently from the womb to the tomb without the divine intent, you die 
pauper in the midst of the riches. The purpose. Notice the perception. Have you ever noticed how that Jesus, you notice this kids, have you ever noticed how Jesus oftentimes called the, the insignificant and the, what we would call the unimportant, the, 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 the riffraff. I mean, the people he called, these 12 men he called to follow him were really not notable. We know little about them. Some of them, we don't, all, the, all we know about these 12 men were their names. There's Matthew, who was a tax gatherer, a traitor, hated by the Jews. There's Simon the Zealot. Simon was a member of the Sicari, that was the Jewish underground terrorist group called Sicari because they carried a knife by the same name that had hook on it like a, carpet's knife, carpenter's, a, a carpet layer's knife they liked to cut people's throats with. If, you, if he'd have lived in Ireland, he'd have been a member of the IRA. If he'd lived in the Middle East, he'd have been in the PLO. If he'd lived in Lebanon or Iran, he'd have been a member of the Shiite Muslims engaged in holy wars. He was vicious and vile. Jesus called him. And when he decided that the multitude needed something to eat, he took a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fishes, and fed a multitude, the only miracle mentioned in all of the Gospels. And when he got ready to ride into Jerusalem on his triumphant day, he didn't choose a white stallion or a gold-plated chariot. He came riding in on a little donkey. You ever noticed? You ever noticed how Jesus often chooses the insignificant to do his greatest work. You know why? Because he sees something in you that the world cannot see, others cannot see. Perhaps you don't even know it's there. And so the cleaning lady, every day cleaned up after the sculptor. He was working on that big old rock he had in his studio and she'd clean up every night. He'd work some more. Finally one day when he'd finished the magnificent statue to Lincoln, of Lincoln, that is now in Washington, D.C. When she's finished sweeping up the last shavings and backed off and took a look at that statue of Lincoln, she cried, goodness gracious, how'd you know Mr. Lincoln was in that rock? How does God know that there's a Billy Graham sitting out here in this congregation? And how does God know that there's a preacher out in this group. And how does God know that in the midst of this group there are Dwight L. Moody's, the potential, because God with this perspective is able to see in you, my friend, something that is hidden to most eyes. And so our West Texas rancher Hearing this story said, boy, he must have had wonderful hands. And his preacher said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he had to have magnificent hands to ride on an unbridled, untrained, unbroken, unsaddled horse, donkey, down those narrow streets with palms waving and people shouting and shoving. He had to have skilled and magnificent hands to guide that donkey down those narrow streets. You know what he was saying? He was saying this. It's absolutely amazing what Jesus can do if he can get his hands on you. It's absolutely astounding 
Eye hath not seen, neither hath it entered the mind of man what can happen if man totally puts himself yielded into his hands. Was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer hardly thought it worth his while to auction off the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks? He cried. Who will start the bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar? Two? Only two? Two dollars? Who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, three dollars and gone, but no. From the room far back, an old gray haired man came forward and picked up the bow. And wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a tune so pure and sweet like, like the caroling angels sing. When the music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice quiet and low said, Now what am I bid for the old violin? Hilt it up with a bow. One thousand dollars? 2,000, who will make it two? 3,000, who will make it three? 3,000 once, 3,000 twice, and going and gone, said he, and the people cheered. But some of them cried, we do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, "'Twas the touch of the Master's hand. And many a life out of tune battered and scarred by sin, his auction too cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and they're gone, going once, going twice, going, and almost gone till the master comes. And the foolish crowd never quite understands the worth of the soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hands. I'm looking out on the faces of young people who have been all this week together trying to find some way to know who you are. The only way you'll ever find who you are is in His hands. One last thought, please. There's the pattern. The person, the purpose, the perception, and the pattern. That's it. There's so much, so many misconceptions about Jesus. They thought, they thought that, that, that Jesus was going to have this marvelous kingdom. He's going to be this earthly king, and he's going to make it like it used to be when David was gloriously enthroned. That's why the mother's, mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked, when, when you come to your kingdom, I want one of my sons to be on the right hand. I want my other son to be on the left. This is right, right hand and, and on the left. She just knew that Jesus was going to be president and, and, and she wanted to, them to be in the first in, on the list of the cabinet. Who wouldn't? I mean, if Jesus is inviting us to thrones and kingdoms and presidencies and cabinets. I'd follow him too, wouldn't you? And so you turn on the television, a guy's standing there and he says, I have this beautiful home. I have this marvelous, glorious car. I have, I have this, these wonderful clothes. I have this beautiful wife and I'm beautiful. And if you follow Jesus, he wants you to be rich and beautiful too. 
Is it any wonder that thousands of people followed him like that? Who wouldn't? Young people, if he could promise you you would be popular, a president, wouldn't you follow him? But that's not what he's calling you to. He's not calling you to popularity or presidency. He's calling you to persecution. He's not calling you to a, to a crown. He's calling you to a cross. He's not calling you to a throne from which you exercise your status. He's calling you to a cross. And he says, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. They thought he would come riding into Jerusalem on a white horse, and everything would be great. They'd have bread and food and power. What a, that's not the pattern here. The pattern is that the kingdom is a call to risk. And I think it's important while we worship at the shrine of success to remember that by every worldly standard, Jesus was a colossal failure. Born of peasants, three years like a meteor on the scene and gone. When he had public acclaim, he just dismissed it. His family and followers never really understood him. His, his, his nation had no place for him, and his people rejected him. One of his followers betrayed him, and when he was 33 years old at the prime of life, he died a death that was reserved for the worst sort. He was crucified between two thieves, and when he was buried, he was placed in a stranger's tomb. A failure by every worldly standard. But you see, Jesus was free to fail because he was engaged in something other than success. What is success? Three guys were talking. One says success. Well, I know what success is. It's doing something so notable that you get invited to a private conference with a president. A second said, no, that's not success. Success is doing something so notable that you get a private conference with the president and while you're sitting there, the, the red telephone rings and he's so engrossed in your conversation, he doesn't even notice it. That's success. And the third said, no, success is doing something notable, so notable that you get a private conversation with the president and while you're s sitting there talking, the telephone rings and he answers it and turns and says, it's for you, that's success. Now what is success? Is success living a long life? Is success acquiring material goods? Is success status and offices you hold? Is success? being successful in business? I think not. I think we need to understand that if you follow Jesus and do His will, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win all the time. And this theology that says that does not jibe with the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you decide to follow Him, it means you give up your life to do it. For the kingdom comes by a cross. Now lest you think I'm promoting failure, I'm not. 
I am saying that Jesus' concept of greatness is 180 degrees from ours. For to Jesus, greatness came in ministry. And the great people were the ones who served. And the great people were the ones who gave. Why do you think this story comes after the encounter Jesus had with Zacchaeus? It's in the first part of this chapter. You remember when Jesus went into that room and talked to Zacchaeus and they came outside? Zacchaeus said, if I've wronged any man, I'll give him four times what I've wronged him and I'll give up half what I have to the poor. You know what was going on in that room? Jesus was talking to a little man and telling him that big men are people who give everything away. And why do you think this story comes on the heels of this marvelous parable about talents? You read it sometime. Jesus was saying in these verses immediately preceding the ones I've read that the great people, the successful people are the people who are faithful to the gifts and the talents that God has given them. And that success comes when a person finds a way to give away his life. I'll stop with this. Stephen Kenna has written a book called When the Cheering Stops. In this book he tells the story of a man who was a failure, a loser, a reprobate, a creep. But one day a little girl was about to be killed in an accident and this man risked his life to save her and did. But he was mortally wounded, injured. And as he breathed out his last breath, he said, quote, It's been a long, weary road, but now I rest me at the end, I end, end. I rest me at the inn where broken dreams come true. You know what Stephen Kenna was saying? He's saying that those dreams we all have of success, those dreams we all have of power and status, those dreams we all have of kingdoms, and authority come true when a person gives up his life for someone else. And so 2,000 years after he rode into Jerusalem, his invitation is still the same. I need you and you need to be needed. Is there anybody who'll give his life away to him? Let's pray together. Father, now call us with a challenge big enough to frighten us and overwhelm us and thrill us. Let us hear again your word come 
and follow me, I need you. I need you to be a preacher. I need you to be a teacher. I need you to be the leaven on a campus where Christ is not honored and glorified. I need light. I need salt. I need you. And I pray that young and old alike would rise up and follow him. In whose name I pray. There are three invitations. Listen carefully. An invitation this morning for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. First time experience. First time step. You've heard about it. You've never encountered Jesus personally. Come and do it today. These leaders will be here. These sponsors will be praying for you. You already know they love you. You've been in their home for three days and have seen it. They're going to be praying for you. Maybe there's some who need to come, maybe out of the balcony, down the, all the way down to here to say, I want to commit my life totally to Christ. I want to put my life in His hands. I want to see what He can do with this. I want to give my life away. Maybe you need to come and join the church. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come on the first word.